Welcome to the second wave once again of quarantined evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. I wanted to start tonight by saying that if you want to see an example of a faded yellow rose, you can actually find an example at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. I was there last Sunday and was quite shocked to find a still life that had the exact same faded fading of a yellow rose as the one described in the paper that I talked about last week. It was really impressive. Um, I mean, terribly sad because obviously this beautiful work has this part of it that's no longer as beautiful as it once was. But I think it's really cool now that I can know exactly what that rose would have looked like when it was first painted, having read this paper. Um, and so, yeah, it's very cool, um, to be able to go out into the world and see something that you've just talked about like that. I was not expecting it. We were just walking through a gallery that had a bunch of, um, still lives and other paintings, uh, you know, sort of Dutch paintings. And there it was, uh, <laughs> it was pretty, uh, crazy. Okay. Uh, what I don't want to talk about tonight is what happened earlier today. Uh, I don't have any words, which is obviously unusual for me. I have no idea what to say about it. So I'm going to uh, do the old adage of uh, chances are if you have nothing good to say, um, or if you have nothing good to say, chances are you're at the ice capades. Um, <laughs> if you get that that obscure joke, I love you. Um, if you don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. So, uh, one thing we're going to do though tonight is we're actually going to talk about another art adjacent, uh, tale of using, uh, advanced science to do something that is very helpful and useful. But let's start tonight with some COVID-19 talk because there's actually some really interesting stories out there and I did want to talk about it tonight because why not talk about a global pandemic when you don't want to talk about other things that are also awful at least this is a familiar kind of awful and so we are going to start tonight with some talk about new research on the original SARS-CoV-2 viral strain, which suggests that it was actually able to infect humans by latching onto sugars found on the surface of human cells known as sialicide sugars or sialic acids. Interesting. Interestingly, later strains did not retain this method of adhesion. The researchers used a combination of magnetic resonance, and extremely precise high-resolution imaging using facilities at the Rosalind Franklin Institute and Oxford. Um, hooray for Rosalind Franklin. Uh, she would not put up with this crap that happened today. 
Anyways, we're not talking about that. (laughs) The research is published in Science and shows that early strains were able to make this connection that was also seen in early lab work. The fact that early strains had this ability is, again, suggestive of how the virus first leaped from a zoonotic reservoir to humans. Strains like Delta and Omicron have forgone this mechanism and instead rely on their crown spike, which attaches to ACE2 proteins on human cells, as we have talked about kind of extensively uh, over the last couple of years. The team used a nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy technique. Uh, Can we just talk about how fundamental magnetic resonance has become to uh, science? Whoever uh, invented that, which I don't know who specifically, uh, good job. (laughs) And so uh, they used a technique called saturation transfer difference. And they actually developed a new analysis method to address the problem. They call this new technique universal saturation transfer analysis. Professor Ben Davis of the Franklin Institute and Oxford and a senior author of the paper said, two of the ongoing mysteries of the coronavirus pandemic are the mechanisms behind viral transmission and the origins of the zoonotic leap. There is evidence that some influenza viruses can grab sialic acid on the surface of human host cells, and this has been seen in Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, which is a coronavirus. Although SARS-CoV-2 variants of concern have not shown this mechanism, our research finds that the viral strain that emerged in early 2020 could use this as a way of getting into human cells. It turns out that this binding mechanism is found at the end of an area of the virus that rapidly evolves, called the N-terminal domain. This area has previously been implicated but not proven to be involved in sialic acid binding. Professor Davis suggests that later strains may have deactivated this binding process because it is either no longer needed or is overall detrimental to the health of the virus or the reproduction of the virus. And so apparently it is in a a specific orientation that actually makes it a little bit harder than doing it via the spike protein way. And so once it's in the cells, it's actually easier to jump from cell to cell using the spike protein, whereas it's easier to kind of first latch on to human cells using that initial um, sialic acid uh, binding. And so uh, from the paper, We speculate that SARS-CoV-2 must walk a tight balance between the ability to bind human host glycans, potentially useful in a zoonotic leap, and cell-to-cell transmission, where release could become rate-limiting. One answer to this problem would be to ablate N-glycan binding via the sialicide motif subsequent to a successful zoonotic leap. This solution also has the advantage of removing a potential site for antibody neutralization for an interaction that might prove pivotal or critical in the context of zoonosis as a potentially global driver of virus fitness. 
Our combined data and models may therefore support decades-old hypotheses proposing the benefit of cryptic sugar binding by pathogens that may be, quote, switched on or and off to drive fitness in a different manner, e.g. in virulence or zoonosis, as needed. Whew, that was a lot. <laughs> um, reading papers is always fun because it's always interesting to see all of the things that you have to end up looking up and thinking hard about. <laughs> I hope that wasn't too bad. And so one of the cool things that they noted is that early clinical tests suggested a role of sialic acid in early SARS-CoV-2 infections. The Italian Genomics Consortium found that there was a genetic component to the severity of COVID-19 illness. Patients with a particular gene mutation that affects the type of sialic acid they produce on cells seemed to have less severe cases of the disease. Basically, there weren't as many of them showing up in intensive care units. This suggests that their genotype was less easily infected than others. Professor James Naismith, director of the Rosalind Franklin Institute, says, With our ultra-high precision imaging and new methods of analysis, we can see a previously unknown structure at the very end of the SARS-CoV-2 spike. The amazing thing is that our findings correlates with what the Italian researchers noted in the first wave, suggesting that this was a key role in early infection. The new technique can be used by others to shed light on the viral structures and on other viral structures and answer extremely detailed questions. So again, this was not only a study of those um, early SARS viruses, but it was actually also um, one of those times where a new technique was actually developed during this process. And that new technique is now available to other scientists to also use, which is really cool. Um, and a lot of times that happens that people have to develop new um, algorithms and new kinds of techniques. And so not only does it help them with their current research, it then goes on to help others with their research in the future, which is very cool. And I believe specifically that they say that all of their um, information on how they did things is up on uh, the web for free and is publicly accessible. So um, yeah, that is very cool. Um, so we're going to move on now and we're going to talk about something that I thought was really, really interesting and could potentially down the road uh, be really a exciting way in which we could help people who are suffering from severe and long-term COVID. Uh, but I have to do a top of the story caveat uh, of the fact that this talks about a um, mechanism that can be treated with a drug. Unfortunately, as I will note later, the drug is not currently approved in the U.S. Um, and it's not that there's any side effects. It just, we don't use it. And so it hasn't been vetted and we, therefore, the drug will need to go through 
clinical trials all the way through. Um, it looks very promising, but it's not going to be available uh, fairly anytime soon because, you know, the process of FDA approval is something that needs to be done and needs to be done rigorously. Um, so this is very cool, but again, it's one of those things where it's like, this is the research. Now we have to go out and do all of the clinical trials. That being said, let's talk about it because I think it's really just a really fascinating and um, important, actually, uh, study. And so it is a study on the sputum of patients with severe COVID-19 infections and again, some with long COVID as well. Researchers at Stanford have taken the unusual step to move away from serological studies, studying the blood serum, and have directly tied tried to understand the composition of the thick gummy phlegm, which is characteristic of patients who end up needing ventilators due to severe COVID-19 infections. Their study was the first to analyze in depth the makeup, viscosity, and immunological characteristics of sputum from the lungs of patients with severe cases of COVID-19. Paul Balaki, Balaki, we'll go with Balaki. It's B-O-L-L-Y-K-Y. I apologize. Um, I'm terrible at Slavic name pronunciation. Um, I assume it's Slavic. So we're just going to go with Balaki, Balaki, uh, MD, PhD, an associate professor of infectious diseases and of microbiology and immunology. Notes. Thick, gummy respiratory secretions are at the heart of severe COVID-19. But while tens of thousands of studies have analyzed COVID-19 patients' blood samples, people haven't looked much at seriously ill COVID-19 patients' sputum samples, not least because they're so hard to get. A team of pulmonologists, material scientists, and infectious disease specialists identified three substances contained, containing, contained in the sputum of COVID-19 patients who required intubation. These elements cause the sputum to become stiff, hard to cough up, a hindrance to oxygen exchange in the lungs, and are prone to inflammation as well as fluid buildup. And as we all know, fluid buildup in the lungs is very bad. That is pneumonia, that is not being able to breathe, that is really bad. And that is one of the big things that leads to uh, death for people is that you get fluid buildup in the lungs and uh, basically you can no longer breathe. The sputum in these patients is actually comparable to that of patients with cystic fibrosis. And so um, if you know about cystic fibrosis, I would assume you do. I I definitely learned about it in, uh, I think, in our genetics uh, segment of uh, probably 11th grade science class. Um, I remember a whole thing about cystic fibrosis. It was very big in uh, the time period when I was in high school, which I'm not going to talk about. Um, 
but uh, that is kind of the characteristic thing about cystic fibrosis patients is that they have a genetic mutation that causes them to have a buildup of this um, sputum that is thick and hard to be able to get out of the lungs, and therefore they have to constantly have therapeutic, um, they need to have sort of physical therapy all of the time and be on drugs and do things in order to help them um, be able to actually breathe. And so the sputum is a mix of mucus, cellular debris, immune cells, salts, and, you know, basically other bits and bobs. And it tends to be too thick for the body to excrete naturally, which is, of course, through coughing. So normally when you cough, you sometimes, you know, have sputum come up and it's the normal way of clearing it out of the lungs. But in patients with this kind of uh, triple threat of polymers, uh, it just does not work. Um, it's really hard to actually manage to cough it up and out, and thus it's hard to get it out of your lungs. And as we know, that's bad. And so these patients are literally drowning in their own respiratory secretions, Balyaki said. Now, to test the makeup of the sputum, researchers extracted it from the from 17 consenting patients ranging in age from 5 to 70, basically just as they were about to be intubated. They found three polymers. And so the first was a hygroscopic polymer, and that is substances that soak up water like a sponge and then create these sort of gelatinous tangles that impair movement and oxygen respiration in the lungs. Now, one part is actually human DNA, which they suspect is the contents of cells that have died in the lungs and are basically spilling out the contents of their um, of the inside of the cell, which is a lot of DNA and other uh, organelles and things like that. The second is mucin, which is a sugar-decorated protein that's a big part of mucus. And so that's kind of a normal thing. Um, if you've ever heard of drugs that use the word mucin in them, um, that's why they call it that, is because mucin and mucus are sort of a normal part of uh, lung um, development, or not development, but uh a way in which the body is able to clear things out of the lungs is by the use of mucus. But the level of mucin actually varied greatly in the patients, so that was interesting. Now, the third was a carbohydrate called halianornin. Haluronin, which was tenfold of that found in healthy patients. Hyaluronin is used in several ways by the body naturally. It helps cement cells into place in intact tissues. It works with collagen to pad our joints, but it's also produced at the site of injury and infection and, very importantly, causes an immune response that leads to inflammation. And so they found that in the sputum, shortened shards of hyaluronin 
were found. And that's actually the kind that produces the worst immune response. And that can actually lead to fibrosis or the forming of scar tissue. Fibrotic lungs can cause chronic shortness of breath, which is a symptom often noted by long COVID patients. A companion clinical trial found that a small molecule drug that has been shown to prevent the buildup of hyaluronin works in patients with no noted side effects, once again. Now, again, the drug is not authorized in, for use in the U.S. at this particular moment, but it is widely used in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, but it's actually used for treating the pain associated with gallstones. Uh, so you can see why we can't just pull it off the shelf and start using it right away. Um, because it is not set up for being used for COVID-19 at this point. Um, and so the current formulation is not optimized to treat long-term disease. It is meant to be kind of a small, short, uh, use kind of drug in order to, uh, get patients through either until they have surgery or until, uh, they can get something that dissolves the stones, something like that. And so it will need to both be adjusted and again, go through a full battery of clinical trials. But the early results are promising. And the other thing about this is that it would actually work in conjunction with antivirals. And so the antivirals could still be doing their thing. And this could help alleviate lethal lung disease and again, to possibly prevent the development of fibrosis in patients with long COVID. So that is very exciting, and I am really looking forward to further research going into that, and hopefully that will eventually reach the point where it can be a actual therapeutic that is out there uh, being used right now. Okay, so... Let's turn now from earlier strains of COVID to the newest variants, BA4 and BA5. According to the CDC, as of yesterday, they now account for 35% of U.S. cases and are expected to be the dominant strain quite soon, probably within the next week or two. Both have the same mutation in their spike protein, but differ elsewhere in their genomes, which is why they have distinct names. And so Dr. Shishi Luo told Ars Technica that they should be the dominant strain oh, in a few weeks. <laughs> um, and so Luo is actually the head of infectious diseases at Helix, a California-based population genomics and viral surveillance company that works with the CDC to help track emerging coronavirus variants nationwide. Now, these subvariants were first detected in South Africa back in April, and they've proved more adept at evading immune responses from vaccination and past infection, even infection with other Omicron variants that have circulated recently. Researchers at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston wrote a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine, which shows the latest data on the variants. They found that neutralizing antibody titers are reduced by 21-fold 
compared to the original strain of COVID-19 for people who have been vaccinated and boosted with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Even for those who had been infected with BA1, levels were still nearly threefold lower than those for BA1, and BA1 was already fairly lower than uh, other strains. Now, a preprint study recently suggested that BA4 and BA5 cause more severe disease in hamster models, but it's important to remember that animal models don't always translate one-to-one to humans. And in fact, I think there were previous strains that also were harder on hamsters, but did not translate to being harder on humans. Hospitalization data from countries where the strains are already dominant do not suggest that there have been more hospitalizations or more severe cases. And so this suggests that while more people will be infected with the availability of antiviral drugs and vaccinations that still highly protect against severe illness and death, that this is a wave to be watched but not dreaded. Now, while we were able to quickly detect and start studying BA4 and BA5 as they arose and spread through South Africa, right now there doesn't seem to be any other variants that are rising, Luo said, but you know, that could change in the next few days. I wouldn't put it past this virus to mutate yet again and for there to be yet another wave. But again, the immediate prospect is that these two sub-variants will continue to rise and then dominate in the U.S. within a short period of time. Now, Moderna, for its part, continues to work on developing new vaccine variants. The latest is a bivalent vaccine that targets both the original strain and the original variant of Omicron, which it suggests has shown a boost in protection against both BA4 and BA5, increasing neutralizing antibody levels up to sixfold. In the face of SARS-CoV-2's continued evolution, we are very encouraged that mRNA 1273.214, our lead booster candidate for the fall, has shown high neutralizing titers against the BA4 and BA5 subvariants, which represent an emergent threat to global public health. Moderna CEO Stéphane Bancel said in a statement, We will submit these data to regulators urgently and are preparing to supply our next generation bivalent booster starting in August, ahead of a potential rise in SARS-CoV-2 infections due to Omicron subvariants in the early fall. Now, of course, this is part a sales pitch, um, and so should be taken with a grain of salt. And it is also uh, a little bit uh, unfortunate that a story that has been kind of out there, but not necessarily really thought about hard enough as far as I'm concerned, is that basically Congress actually doesn't have enough money to continue to roll out free vaccines to everyone. Um, So yeah, there's that. Um, And so that's going to be interesting. And another issue is with people's waning ability to take the virus seriously in any way. Um, 
in general. And so with reduced testing and surveillance, a new variant could spread and become entrenched before authorities even know about it. Looking ahead, we have to figure out, will there be enough samples? If not, then will there be enough people presenting at urgent care or health systems or hospitals where there is an opportunity to take a sample and send it for sequencing? I think a system that does that at scale doesn't exist yet, Luo said. And she notes that if a new variant arises that is able to circumvent the current vaccines and antivirals, we could be back at square one. What's required is a plan by the government to continue surveillance and testing. Even if, right now, we don't think there's another variant on the horizon, it does appear we need a plan for how we're going to, as a country, deal with responding to it, she said. We can't just keep hoping it goes away by itself. Epidemiology requires data, and epidemiology is how you stop pandemics. So, yeah. All right. We are going to take a break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we will talk about uh, a, another way that you can help stop the spread of diseases and uh, especially things like pandemics and other infectious uh, agents. So do come back for that or stay tuned. All right. You are listening to Evidence Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis. P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, 
in the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. So, you are still listening, I hope, to Evidence-Based Radio, and we are going to be talking about a really cool uh, new invention that could potentially have really interesting implications for uh, infectious disease spread. And so, this is and the invention of extremely thin copper mesh that can be applied to hands and is virtually undetectable, but kills up to 99.9% of bacteria and viruses within 10 minutes. The nano mesh allows for coating of the hands and especially fingertips without significant interference with the rate of skin temperature change and humidity. A team of researchers from the University of Tokyo the Korea Research Institute of Bioscience and Biotechnology, and the Center for Emergent Matter Science and Thin Film Device Laboratory, Reichen 21 Hirosawa, developed this rather remarkable substance. Now, we've known that copper has antimicrobial properties for thousands of years. It was used in ancient Egypt to treat wounds in order to prevent infections. Copper is often used on counters and tables to kill bacteria, both in the home and in hospitals. Now, of course, in some places, silver is also used, but copper seems to be quite good at the um, nanometer scale, for instance. And so, uh, you know, normally copper is generally heavy and unwieldy. So the researchers created tiny copper strands and then spun them together randomly to create a mesh. The mesh was then flattened to three microns thick, uh, which is very small. This renders the film invisible to the naked eye and unable to be detected by touch. So it's very small and very uh, unassuming, I guess. This renders the, the result This creates a result that is bendable and stretchy and can thus be used in a variety of ways. The researchers suggest that an obvious application for their antimicrobial mesh is on cell phones and tablets, and so they tested to see if there would be any interference, and there wasn't any. Um, So you could use your tablet or cell phone just as you always would, but it would have that uh, antimicrobial, antibacterial uh, covering on it, which would be really great. And because it is not chemical-based, because it is just 
copper, you wouldn't have to worry about it uh, necessarily wearing off, um, though it might, you might have to replace the mesh at some point from physical wearing off. And so other pop possible applications would be doorknobs, light switches, and basically other places where more than one person is liable to touch. And again, the real goal, uh, as far as the researchers are concerned, would actually be to create gloves that would not be detectable while worn, but would be extremely effective against contamination from microbes. Now, I would want to uh, investigate how this might affect how we gain and maintain healthy and helpful bacteria. Um, I'm not sure if it would have any uh, interference with that at all, but if there isn't any interference with that process, then this is pretty amazing. Um, and I think it is a big breakthrough and we should be very excited about it because um, it's really a great way to be able to have um, ways in which to limit the spread of disease in a way that is easy and um doesn't require a lot uh, because anything that requires a lot is not going to have great uptake with people. Um, that's just how humans are. If it takes effort, a lot of people aren't going to bother doing it. Okay, let's move on now and talk about the outbreak of vaccine-derived polio, also called type 2 poliovirus, that has been detected in London. Now, unfortunately, even though we've been trying really, really hard, we have not been able to fully eradicate polio. Now, much of this has to do with politics and incompetence on the part of those trying to administer the, vac administer the vaccine in the last holdouts, Afghanistan and Pakistan, which have a deep distrust of what they perceive as Western interference in their lives, and frankly, who could blame them at this point? Um, all arguments against the cultural issues in Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, you can't blame them for being suspicious of Westerners who want to give them a drug. And uh, so, and also, I think there actually have been like actual times where like CIA agents were embedded with people trying to administer the drug. And so, like, you know, the old adage of uh, just because people think you're paranoid doesn't mean you aren't right um, comes into play here. So, uh, yeah, I remember there was a scandal a while back where I just felt like <sighs> we are trying to do this important and amazing thing to rid the world of the second uh, infectious disease and you had to muck it up. And um, I remember it being very frustrated. Anyways, uh, again, we haven't quite gotten there yet. And so we are going to focus tonight on this recent outbreak. And so the cluster was detected using sewage surveillance, which is actually a pretty effective way to test for a variety of diseases among the populace, including COVID-19. So um, in the U.S., they actually also do um, sewage surveillance and have found where COVID-19 uh, clusters are using that as well. 
And so I am calling it a cluster, but no cases have actually been reported as of yet. And uh, importantly, no cases of paralysis have been found at this time, despite one sewage sampling location repeatedly detecting the virus. Thus, it is likely there has been some spread between closely linked individuals in North and East London, and that they are now shedding the type 2 poliovirus strain in their feces, the UK Health Security Agency, UKHSA, said. The agency noted that there are often a small number of vaccine-like polioviruses that are detected via wastewater monitoring, but this is usually due to people having entered the country who had recently been administered the oral polio vaccine. As with many things like this, there is one treatment for the global north and another for the global south. Richer countries that are considered polio-free can afford to both due to uh, the cost and due to the fact that um, polio uh, eradication has been much more intense there, they're able to use an inactivated vaccine that is highly effective against paralytic polio, but does not produce a strong immune response in the gut where polio enters the system. This means that if they were to travel to a place where wild polio is still endemic, they could still produce virus in their gut and potentially spread it to others. Now, the oral vaccine is up to five times cheaper and both prevents paralytic polio and produces a strong immune response in the gut, which seems superior. But those who have been given the oral dose can shed attenuated vaccine viruses in their waste for several weeks after vaccination. This means that if you have a community with a low vaccination rate and poor access to sanitation and hygiene, the vaccine can start to spread in the community. As it does this, it can pick up mutations that begin to make it more potent and closer to the original wild-type polio, even occasionally causing paralysis. And at that point, it becomes a, quote, vaccine-derived poliovirus, or VDPV. Cases of VDPV have been reported in several African countries as well as in Israel. And now an outbreak of VDPV seems to be happening in London. Vaccine-derived poliovirus is rare, and the risk to the public overall is extremely low, Dr. Vanessa Saliba, consultant epidemiologist at UKHSA, said, but vaccine-derived poliovirus has the potential to spread, particularly in communities where vaccine uptake is lower. On rare occasions, it can cause paralysis in people who are not fully vaccinated. So if you or your child are not up to date with your polio vaccinations, it's important to contact your doctor to catch up or if unsure, check your vaccination records. Most of the UK population will be protected from vaccination in childhood, but in some communities with low vaccine coverage, individuals may remain at risk. So yeah, um, and it turns out that many people who are infected with polio actually have no symptoms. Um, about a quarter will develop flu-like symptoms that will clear without intervention. According to the CDC, around 1 in 200 people infected will develop paralysis. And around 2 to 10% of those who develop paralysis will die as the disease attacks their lungs and they are no longer able to breathe. 
for anyone who survives the initial infection, no matter the severity, around 25 to 40% will develop post-polio syndrome, which can cause pain, weakness, and paralysis 15 to 40 years after the initial infection. So yeah, polio, not a great thing. We should definitely not be uh, interested in continuing to let it uh, flourish anywhere. Um, And I'm not sure how we solve this problem of uh, the lack of a complete vaccination program in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, Again, the political situation has uh, really mucked that up. Um, (laughs) I could say much stronger words about how uh, that process has been disrupted. And um, yeah, maybe I'll look in to see uh, how Guinea worm is doing, because maybe we can chalk that one up. Uh, Jimmy Carter has been working really hard on eradicating Guinea worm in Africa, and maybe that's doing better than polio. Uh, I will try and look that up. And if there's good news, I'll let you know. (laughs) Um, So if you don't hear from me, don't think about it. Um, Okay, let us move on now and talk about that art-related story. This time, we're discovering that the popular pigment called Prussian Blue, the first modern synthetic pigment, has yet another use. Now, first off, it's used as a pigment and was heavily employed by Picasso during his blue phase, uh, unsurprisingly, as well as in Van Gogh's Starry Night. It's also used in one of my personal favorite works of art ever, uh, Hokusai's The Great Wave Off Kanagawa. Um, I am a Hokusai uh, fangirl. I love Japanese uh, woodblock prints. They are one of my favorite kinds of art. And um, The Great Wave is obviously just so iconic and so beautiful. And so, yeah. But beyond that, it's actually already been employed as a bunch of other things. It's used as a treatment for heavy metal poisoning from thallium or radioactive cesium. And so this is due to the fact that the substance creates a lattice-like network structure that can trap metal ions from certain groups and prevent their absorption in the body. It was also used to remove cesium from soil around the Fukushima plant after the 2011 tsunami. It's also in some cosmetics and used as a stain to to detect iron by pathologists. And now researchers have found that it's able to extract um, molybdenum, which I always used to pronounce as a child as molybdenum, um, (laughs) molybdenum and platinum group metals from e-waste or electronic waste, better than conventional bio-based absorbents. Now, recycling elements from e-waste is a big deal. A lot of rare elements are used to produce modern electronics, and continually sourcing them from ore is both expensive and time-consuming, as well as basically a scourge on the planet. So, um, and a lot of things that are kind of planet-saving 
also use some of these elements. So there's a whole thing about the lithium ion batteries in your uh, electric car um, and how those are, you know, really bad when it comes to um, actually uh, mining for the initial ore. And so being able to get more of it back from e-waste without having to do more um, extraction from the earth is really good. Um, and in fact, it can be easier to recycle them than to find them in ore. And so uh, the researchers note, the amount of gold contained in one ton of mobile phones is 300 to 400 grams, which is much higher by 10 to 80 times than that in one ton of natural ore. The authors wrote, the other elements have a similar situation. Consequently, the recovery of those precious elements from e-wastes is much more effective and efficient when compared to their collections from natural ore. And so Prussian blue is able to extract PMGs and molybdenum due to a simple cubic lattice structure, which uh, the researchers actually compared to a jungle gym. And so this allows for several different methods of capture by the chemical. For radioactive cesium, for instance, it traps the cesium in interstitial nanospace within the lattice. Um, so basically, there's little spots that are open in the lattice, and it just sucks the cesium into those openings. Palladium is incorporated through substitution with iron atoms in the Prussian blue nanoparticles, or PBNP. The new research suggests that this is the same case for ruthenium, rhodium, and molybdenum. They found that substitution efficiency was estimated to be 39% for ruthenium, 47.8% for rhodium, 87% for palladium, and 17.1% for molybdenum. This suggests that one gram of PBNP can recover 0.13 grams of ruthenium, 0.60 grams of rhodium, 0.30 grams of palladium, and 0.107 grams of molybdenum. And while that doesn't sound like a ton, it's again a lot easier than digging it out of the earth. And one of the huge big things about this is that PBNPs can be produced in high, in huge quantities, and they exhibit non-toxic and stable properties up to 572 degrees Fahrenheit. The researchers, therefore, see it as a good candidate for future use as an e-waste recycler. They also see potential for its use as a nuclear waste recycler. They note that currently, spent nuclear fuel is vitrified at a reprocessing plant. First, the uranium and plutonium are separated in order to be reused as new fuel. Then, the high-level radioactive liquid wastes, or HLLW, are vitrified and geologically disposed of in deep, stable rock formations. Um, so basically, they find uh, old salt mines or uh, salt domes and other places like that. Um, Yucca Mountain, you might have heard of. There was a whole thing about Yucca Mountain. And basically, you are able to take this nuclear waste and turn it into basically glass and put it in containers 
and sequester it away in a way that is fairly uh, imp- fairly safe. I mean, it's a lot safer than uh, people tend to think it is. It's not 100% safe, obviously. Nothing is 100% safe. But um, this process is actually pretty... Um, is pretty well done. And so um, we can have a whole discussion of nuclear power and things like that another time. Uh, And so the authors note that during the vitrification process, PGMs, especially ruthenium, rhodium, and palladium, as well as molybdenum, molybdenum, sorry, I did not do that on purpose, uh, cause serious problems. PGMs tend to settle on the sidewall surface of a glass melter, giving rise to an inhomogeneous thermal distribution of the melter. And molybdenum forms low-viscosity fluid compounds, so-called yellow phase, in the vitrified object. These issues degrade the quality and stability of the vitrified objects due to heterogeneity, and increase both disposal spaces and costs in conjunction with additional vitrified rods produced by flushing the glass melter. And so, uh, in addition, ruthenium produces 2.09 kilograms, rhodium 0.36 kilograms, and palladium 1.2 kilograms per ton of used fuels for light water reactors and will be 1.5 to 2 times higher for fast breeder reactors. This suggests the usefulness of recycling, and the really other big thing is that cleaning of the glass melters via PBNP. And now, of course, the elements recovered from that would have to be stored for a few decades, but... uh, you know, they would still be able to be used. And so, again, this is really great for a recycling uh, of these metals that are, uh, you know, hard to get. Uh, Some of them are in places that we don't have great relationships with right now. Um, And so that's another thing is that if you can recycle what you already have, you don't have to try and get it from countries that we aren't necessarily uh, having great trade relations with. And so it's just kind of a win-win kind of thing. And especially since this is such a uh, easily produced and non-toxic uh, substance. Now, getting back to it as a use as an art supply, Prussian blue is thought to have been first synthesized by accident by a Berlin paint maker, Johann Jakob Diesbach, around 1706. Diesbach was apparently attempting to make a red pigment by combining potash, ferric sulfate, and dried cochineal. And um, so cochineal is the uh, red dye that is uh, ground up beetles, um, just so that you remember. Um, And the story is that the potash was tainted with blood, uh, most likely a cut on the finger or other small injury. Um, And so this reaction created the ferrocyanide with a deep blue that we now know as Prussian or Berlin blue. 
And um, it does say ferrocyanide, but it is non-toxic. Um, uh, there are forms of cyanide that are non-toxic um, when they're combined with other uh, elements. And so uh, the first painting to showcase the pigment is thought to have been Pieter van Werff's uh, Entombment of Christ from 1709. Uh, but the recipe was published in 1734 and then became popular soon after. Um, and so before that, you had to use things like, um, you had to use different things like the ultramarine or uh, other, I'm trying to remember what the other one was. Um, we talked about it, smalt, that's it. Uh, you could use smalt, which we talked about last week, and how that has faded and uh, not been great. But ultramarine was the good one, but that was actually made literally from lapis lazuli, and lapis lazuli is only found in Afghanistan, so that was very pricey. Um, you could also use indigo dye, but again, um, once Prussian blue was created, it just opened up a world of blues. Um, because once again, blue is one of those colors that's really hard to find in nature. Um, we've talked about um, food companies trying to find a way to create a natural dye uh, that is food safe. Uh, and there was um, some work done on using red cabbage for that. And um, yeah, so blue is definitely one of those uh, unique uh colors that you don't find as much in nature. And a lot of times when you find a blue in nature, it's structural, not um, caused by um, melanin. So uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Okay, that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, next week, I will not be live. I am going to be on vacation next week. Um, and at the end of the week, I'll be at my parents' house that does not have the internet. Ah, it will be glorious. Okay, I hope you have a good week, and um, I'll see you back in two weeks. You've been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.